Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Welcome to The Delicious Podcast with me, Julie Smith. And this week, I'm with multi-award winning food writer Pete Brown, whose latest book, Pie Fidelity, explores a patriotic story of British food. He describes himself as a professional northern foodie. And I asked him if he sets out in the book to find out what that means. Yes, uh, I think like a lot of people uh, growing up in the north when I did, I kind of couldn't wait to get out of there really. And um, I don't go back very often. But uh, coming up to 50, kind of realised that it's still a big part of my identity. Uh, There's this thing about kind of being very proud of coming from there, even if you uh, don't necessarily go back a lot. And and the book was in some ways uh, an attempt to reconnect my kind of selves, really. Uh, I still feel quite often like this guileless sort of (laughs) teenager from Barnsley. Uh, And realising that through food, uh, I think... People's food memories are incredibly strong. That's something I've really discovered when I uh, have been researching this book and talking to people. And and food is something that stayed with me. Uh, my my sort of food appetites are still very much uh, of my kind of northern working class origins. It's funny. I mean, you know, we in the book you talk about authenticity, you talk about origins, you you take British dishes right back and you take them apart and you try and find where, where they come from. And it's a wonderful history lesson of British food. It's a fantastic mm. read on, on that level. But you're slightly having a bit of a laugh at that you know what you've just talked about you know the the, the imposter syndrome the, mm. the 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 kind of sense of finding a self that was lost along the way you know you wouldn't hear an Italian talk like that would you no I think we have a very very curious attitude uh, towards our food and the idea for the book actually started with me uh, thinking not necessarily about the dishes that I've ended up writing about but uh, with the notion of could I be patriotic in a way that doesn't sound kind of flag-waving and and jingoistic. And I realised that food is the perfect carrier of that. We're very uh, self-effacing about our food culture. We're the only country I know that cheerfully denigrates our own food culture. And yet when you ask us privately about it, we say that our food is the most important thing about being British. Uh, So I wanted to explore that contradiction and what that says about Britishness itself. And what did you find? I just think that we're very quiet and very modest and... um, our food is very simple, and we can sometimes mistake simplicity with lack of uh, appeal. Also, in, in terms of Britain's reputation for having bad food, our dishes are not bad at all. We have excellent pasture, we have excellent climate, uh, great um, conditions for, for growing really good quality livestock and all this kind of stuff. We have good chefs. The only reason that our food has this reputation for um, poor quality is that we're prepared to accept very poor quality versions of it in, in supermarkets and in a lot of uh, kind of chain restaurants and things. Uh, and I found that when you go back, our food really is something to be proud of. Yeah, well, there's a huge sort of disconnect there, isn't there? The the huge majority of British people are buying in supermarkets without any particular affection for food and, and, and food history. Unlike 
the Italians and the French and, and the rest of the world. And I just wonder where that happened. I mean, we do know that the Industrial Revolution was the, was the reason for that. Well, take us back to Barnsley, for example, when you, were t- when you took your wife to try your favourite <laughs> pie and mash. When you were actually eating in that cafe, did you get a sense of the people that you were talking to in just regular old Barnsley of how proud they were of pie and mash? Um, they weren't necessarily proud of it. It was just, I think the extraordinary thing when you go there and also to the to the fish and chip shops that I grew up with is the food is of incredibly high quality. And if you're quite parochial and you don't travel very much, you don't realise how high quality it is. You just think that's where it is. Um, uh, that, pie and, uh, that pie and peas and, and the fish and chips that I grew up with, I just thought that's what they were like. And then when I left, I was, and first time I had fish and chips at university, I was like, what's this? This is, this is not fish and chips. And it took quite a long time to realise that we had these really great versions of stuff and it's interesting when you go back to Barnsley Market now it's just reopened and the the quality of food that is being sold there it's incredibly cheap and it's really good quality if it was in London people would be going crazy for it Uh, but because it's in Barnsley and the people in Barnsley just think that's ordinary they just think that's normal Uh, and what is kind of concerning is that the people shopping there are mostly over 60 uh, and younger people kind of can't do that shopping without the reassurance of big brands uh, I found that quite often on my journey that uh, you could see a, a sort of chain brand version of something and an independent version of something. And the chain brand version is consistently poorer, but people need that reassurance. People like me go to Costa, so therefore I'll go to Costa. Uh, this shop next door, which I've never heard of, is an unknown quantity. Therefore, I'm not going to go in there. Uh, I know people who will only go to big brand shops and won't go to independent shops because they don't know what to expect. Yet we're curious by nature. You know, going back to the Italians. We love the Italians. I'm not slagging off the Italians no. far from it, but they don't actually move very far from recipes that their honours used to make. They haven't changed their food for centuries. And yet we do. We embrace yeah. lots of different races we do. and lots of different racial influences. We do, and that's a question that still that this book doesn't quite get to and something that I'm hopefully going to look a little bit further into. Uh, I think part of that comes from, well, anything that we do is rubbish. Anything foreign is better because it's more exotic. But it's partly that, but that doesn't quite explain the whole story okay, uh, but also because we, we have for centuries been a very open and outward looking country despite what people might think at the moment uh, we've always welcomed foreign influences and been very tolerant and we were and the curious. explorers we brought the food to us we yeah. were the great pioneers in food I mean going back in food history I mean we were well, among he, the world leaders in the 15th in, in di- indirectly it was the search for uh, quality spices that led yes. to the birth of the British Empire yeah, exactly. um, with, with, the, with the first uh, East India Company fleet did, did, did you find that people knew that when you were chatting to them in around you? No, I mean, you always get this thing of uh, British food is historically been very bland uh, and it's only recently we've gone to spicy food. And they go, well, what do you serve with uh, roast beef, horseradish and mustard, which are really spicy, maybe not exotic, but they're hot. And when you go back to medieval cooking, it was full of spices. And there is this myth that that was to uh, hide the rotten flavour of the meat. That is a myth uh, because... If you're eating rotten meat, you couldn't afford the spices because the spices were a luxury. Food historians have been arguing about this for ages and everyone claims to have the answer. Let's go back to your northern London foodie self. You're eating in the best capital in the world. Yeah, and it's enormously exciting. And uh, I, I talk in the book about how these days I'm, I'm, an, I'm an incredibly curious and adventurous, too adventurous for my own good sometimes, uh, cook and, and eater. 
Uh, and I love each new cuisine that comes along, and I really embrace it. I cook Korean food at home. I've got I've got hundreds of cookbooks, uh, and all I'm asking for is that we treat our own cuisine with the same respect that we treat all these other fantastic, remarkable cuisines. Because I do believe that it, it holds up uh, against them. So you go around the whole country in the book, and you go from scones in Devon to, as I said, the pie and mash in, in Barnsley, and you look at the origins of spag bol and you and the curries. What was for you the most interesting, not your favourite, but mm. the most interesting dish? I think that would be uh, the Devon cream tea. Uh, because it's a one meal in the book that I don't have a special place for in my heart. Uh, I, If I think cream teas, I think outrageous prices, uh, I think snobbery, uh, everything that is the opposite of, of what I've written about in the book. And when I went to a, a cafe in Devon and had a Devon cream tea, I realised it, it's not snobby at all in its right environment. It's just, it's just the about standards being high and about everything being done correctly. And that's something that takes me right back to, to memories of grandparents and things like that. It's not snobbish. It's not trying to get above yourself. It's just doing everything properly. And when you have an immaculately served cream tea, it's accessible to everybody. It's, it's flour, water, jam and cream. And it's really simple. But you put it on one of those three-tiered plates and it becomes special. And you it put becomes a white a linen tablecloth on and, and, exactly. and a napkin and, and posh silver spoons. Totally, but isn't that one of the things that distanced us from food? Isn't that the the one thing that made us feel that food was a bit better than something that we should have? I think the big thing there is the history of class in this country. And uh, food trends tend to come in in, in, among the upper classes. And then when poorer people can start to afford things, uh, we have to put this thing called etiquette in place to distance us from the poor people. So uh, the best example of that is tea, the drink. It came in uh, through the Royal Court and then through the coffee houses in London. And then when it became affordable for poor people to, to, to drink, all these rituals started cropping up around it. And if you don't put your pinky out or hold your pinky in or whichever one it is, um, because that's another misconception, um, then, then, oh, well, you might be drinking tea, but you're not drinking it properly like we are. Uh, and, and so we do tend to... Uh, I, I, I talk a little bit about uh, Margaret Visser's book on, uh, on on etiquette and manners, and and her point is if you don't have etiquette, then we're just savages basically, and the strongest person is going to eat all the food, and everyone else is going to die. So you do need some structure there, but I I do think it's used as a way of uh, keeping well, just basic snobbery basically. Yeah, hilariously though, the best food that we aspire to to, to cook is peasant food. Yes, yes, it's that beautiful, Spanish, Mexican. That, that beautiful, <laughs> that, that beautiful sort of contradiction, and I think that is uh, that that comes back to this whole authenticity uh, debate. This 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 idea of authenticity as being um, a cool, a form of cool hunting, uh, when we can get everything. Um, uh, branded and packaged and easily available in the supermarket, you create that sense of snobbery and distance by saying, oh yes, well of course I've eaten the proper version in the proper place and you will never go with there because you can't afford to. So uh, so yes, don't you know that you're supposed to eat it like that? And yeah. oh, you, you obviously don't because you haven't been there, but I have. <laughs> and spaghetti bolognese is, is the best way of telling that story. Tell us what you found. It really is. Uh, I mean, I think probably anybody listening to this uh, podcast knows that uh, spaghetti bolognese is not an Italian dish. Uh, it's uh, it's ragu alla bolognese. And it ties itself up quite spectacularly in, in knots because uh, we get, for some reason, this is a great example, the British get the absolute blame uh, for bastardising spag bol and turning it into something that's not authentic. It's the third most popular meal in Germany. It's virtually national dish of Belgium. Uh, it's all across the United States, it's all across Australia, yet somehow the Brits are the people who ruined it. Um, and 
it's quite inconsistent, really. The, the official recipe for spag bol that was, sorry, for agoala bolognese, <laughs> uh, which, is, which now exists for the Culinary Institute, is completely different from the first recipe uh, that was invented. And every recipe I found by someone saying, oh, you Brits don't make proper spag bol, uh, you don't make proper agoala bolognese, it was different from the official recipe. So it's OK for some people to change it. Yeah. But but not for us to change it. Yeah. And my when my, my the thing I'm gonna upset Italians with is saying if everybody's adding tomatoes and red wine and herbs and you're sort of telling us that we're all wrong, if but if we're all doing it, what if ours tastes nicer? <laughs> what if that's why we're doing it? And then we're talking about the whole the whole idea of a recipe. I mean, you know, we use spaghetti, they use tagliatelle. Yeah. They add milk. Although my yeah. mum used to add milk. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure it's nice, but uh, Felicity Cloak, in her Guardian piece, went through a lot of these authentic recipes, and none of them were as nice as, <laughs> as the version as the version. And, that that is the point, and Giorgio Locatelli's is the closest, I think, between something that could be called authentic and something that we would recognise. Yeah. Um, lots of tomatoes, lots of real richness, yeah. and uh, and yeah, I, I I like the fact that. The, the, the meat, the sauce doesn't stay on the noodles. I like to kind of play around with it. It makes it interesting to eat. It's fun. And that's the point of food, isn't it? What's the conclusion? The conclusion is um, that our curious relationship with food is mainly due to the Industrial Revolution, uh, that we industrialised first and we industrialised hardest. And uh, if you Which think meant, of... just to break that down for anyone who doesn't know, we lost our connection with the land. Well, we that's exactly it. Animals, if you, if you to... think about the connection with the land being stretched in places like France and Italy uh, and Spain, and here it was like severed with a scalpel. So within a, the space of a generation or two, people went from being on the land and knowing what their food was and where it came from to being totally dependent on shops and street traders and having no ability to grow their own food uh, and no way of knowing where it came from or what was in it. And um, Food was in tins. It was, yeah, soon. yeah. And, and for most of our history, we've had food shortages. Uh, people often blame rationing. Rationing was actually a massive improvement in the mm. choice and quality of food for most people mm. uh, because you actually were getting those things. Before rationing, most people were eating bread and margarine and, and black tea, mm. and that was their diet. And, and so rationing was a big improvement. Um, but it did kind of bland out the conversation a little bit. Uh, and I think we've got to this place now where we do have this quiet pride. Uh, it's about simple things done well uh, and not crowing about them. And that obviously is classically British. Uh, so in the end, it's uh, it's a very typical uh, expression of our character. Thanks for listening to The Delicious Podcast. You can follow the podcast on social media by searching for hashtag The Delicious Podcast and subscribe and review and share it among your food-loving friends. I'll be back next week with the monthly magazine-style episode featuring British MasterChef Judge Monica Galetti, Thai MasterChef Judge Ian Kittishai, plus the story of how the Beyond Meat Burger, backed by Leonardo DiCaprio, found a home in Brixton.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 